Today on Awaken to Grace, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Kindling. We are learning what it means to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to live lives that are so yielded, so surrendered to God that He can easily set our hearts aflame. Well, I'm calling today Igniters. Where are the Elijahs? We are talking about Elijah on Mount Carmel. How he drew a line in the sand. He drew battle lines and said, no longer are we going to accept idolatry, complacency. No, we are going to follow the Lord with our whole hearts. Well, he called fire down from heaven. Today I want to talk to you about what the fire of God means, what it represents, and how God wants to share his holy fire in our lives. I hope you enjoy today's broadcast of Awaken to Grace. I want to talk to you today. We're in part two of a series called Kindling. The purpose of our series is that we want to be sensitive to the Lord. We want to be, we, we want to be like kindling where God can easily direct us. He can easily guide us. He can easily set fire to our souls. And so today I want to talk about the very familiar story, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Now I grew up in Mount Carmel, Tennessee, but we know that's not the Mount Carmel of the Bible, right? We're going to talk today about the showdown that happened in Mount Carmel, and I believe there are Many principles that we're going to pull from God's Word today. Now, as you know, I typically try to memorize uh, my text. But today, my text stretches from 1 Kings 18 verse 19 all the way down to verse 40. So do you mind if I just walk you through the story instead of trying to remember word for word? And uh, so we'll be in verses 19 to 40 today. This is familiar with many. If it's not familiar with you then I would encourage you to spend some time reading 1 Kings, the story of Elijah. We don't know much about Elijah's childhood. We don't know much about him as a young man. We don't know much about his calling from God. Elijah just seems to burst onto the pages of the Word of God. He just burst onto the scene. He was a prophet of God in a day of idolatry, in a day of unbelief, in a day of what we would call today worldliness, carnality. He lived in a day that Israel had abandoned its faith in God and it followed what the Bible calls the God of Baal. The God of Baal was a false god, had many false prophets. As a matter of fact, the Bible gives us the number in verse 18, had 450 prophets to the God of Baal. And the God of Baal was a Canaanite god. So when Israel came into the land of Canaan and God gave them the land, one of his great commandments was not to follow after the gods of this land. And Baal was a Canaanite god. And often Israel was led astray. This is when the wicked king, King Ahab, ruled Israel. And anybody remember Ahab's wife? Jezebel. So Elijah's ministry is in the is in the throes of King Ahab's kingship and Jezebel's reign over Israel. And it's a very dire, it's a very 
desperate time in Israel. According to chapters 17 and 18, God gave Elijah a prophecy and he shut up the heavens for three years. For three years it did not rain on the earth and a great drought and a great famine came to the people of Israel because of their unbelief, because of their idolatry. Well, when we reach verse 18 and 19 and 20 of chapter 18, there's a showdown that takes place. There's a line that Elijah drew in the sand. And it was on Mount Carmel that he said, either we're going to serve God or let Israel serve Baal. It's going to be one or the other. I would hope that today I'm talking to many people, whether in the church or live online or later through our other platforms, whoever it is that's listening today, I would hope that I'm talking to some people who today God is going to call you to draw a line in the sand. God is going to call you to break the status quo in your life, to rid yourself of spiritual complacency. To rid yourself of unbelief. To rid, to rid yourself of carnality and worldliness and idolatry. Could it be that just like the people of Israel, there was so much idolatry in their day. Could it be that there is a great deal of idolatry in our own lives today? For the American culture, we don't bow down to idols, carvings of wood, carvings of stone. You wouldn't see idols set up in businesses or in family living rooms like you would perhaps in the Far East. When I spent some time in Vietnam, everywhere I went, there were idols set up to Buddha. If you went into a shop, they would have a Buddha statue with incense burning and with a bowl of fruit offered as a sacrifice. I went to the famous Cao Dai Temple. Where they had this massive fake God set up. That there wasn't like 10 people there. There wasn't like 25 or even 100 people there worshipping this idol. No, there were hundreds of people. They even had a children's choir singing to this God made of wood. That the Bible says has eyes but cannot see. Ears but cannot hear. Hands but cannot serve. Feet but cannot walk. Today in our culture we do not worship gods of wooden carvings or stone carvings like other cultures would. But be assured there's idolatry in America. And could it be that in your own heart and in your own family and in your own life there are idols of worship. Things that are put above the Lord Jesus Christ. Things that go above His Lordship. Things that go above your worship. Things that go above your affections toward the Lord. Could that be? And my prayer today in this sermon that I'm entitling, Igniters, where are the Elijahs? Could it be that God wants to do a new work in your heart? A new work in your marriage? A new work in your children? A new work in your place of employment, a new work in our church, a new work in our city. Leonard Ravenhill in his phenomenal book of the 1950s entitled, Why Revival Tarries. If you don't own a copy of that book, you need to get on Amazon 
and order why revival tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill was a man of God, born in the early 1900s. His mom loved God with all of her heart. She gave birth to him, and about three hours later, dressed herself and him and took him to his first prayer meeting. (laughs) Yeah, for real. And Leonard Ravenhill was a mighty man of God. As a matter of fact, his tombstone today, he was born in Great Britain, but he died in Texas. And his tombstone today says, are the things you're living for worth the things Christ died for? And in Leonard Ravenhill's classic book, Why Revival Tarries, he asked a question in chapter 4 that I want to ask to this church today. We look at all of the struggle of our culture. We look at the condition of our country. And are we not in a world of trouble today? And many people would question, but it's the wrong question. The question is, where is the God of Elijah? That's the wrong question. Many people pray and they feel as though God is paying no attention. They feel as though God is unconcerned. They feel as though God is not intervening. They feel as though God is no longer working in the world today. But friends, that's not true. And that's not the right question. The right question is not, where is God? We know exactly where God is. God is on His throne. The right question is, where are the Elijahs? Where are the people of passion? Where are the people of Holy Spirit fire? Where are the people of prayer and fasting? That's the question. And my question to you is after we talk about Elijah today, will you ask God to make you more so a man of prayer? More so a woman of prayer? More so a student of prayer? More so a child of prayer? Will you ask God to transform your heart? To do a new work. To draw a line in the sand and say, I no longer accept spiritual complacency. I no longer accept spiritual unbelief. I no longer accept spiritual idolatry. That's the question today. And so, if you're going to take notes, I want you to note, number one, chiefly, mainly, I want you to note this. Number one, Elijah was a man of prayer. I want you to note that. Now, when we think of Elijah, we think miracles, we think fire, we think boldness, we think all these great things. But no, actually, James gives the greatest description of Elijah in James chapter 5. In verse number 16, it teaches us a little bit here. It says, confess your sins to one another and, and pray for one another that you may be healed. And some great scriptures there, anoint each other with oil. The Bible, Call for the elders of the church and anoint with oil. Great teaching. But then it says, listen to what it says in verse 16. The fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. In other words, has great power as it is working. The prayers of God's people have great power as it is working. I love that word working. Because let me tell you where I grow discouraged so often in prayer life. Where I grow discouraged is if I haven't seen God work. If I haven't seen God do something immediately. If I haven't seen God, if I haven't seen the answer to prayer right then or very soon afterward. But no, what God is teaching me 
especially through all that I'm walking through in life, is that, no, God is working. Don't, God's not this genie in a bottle that any time I quote a scripture or any time that I pray a prayer, that all of a sudden God is just at my service. No, no, no. I'm at His service. And sometimes God is in the waiting. And sometimes God is glorified in waiting. But be assured, as you pray, God is working. Amen? There's a young girl in our church right now who is very far from God. And the Lord has me. We have intercessory prayer every Tuesday night at 5.30. Now that's not prayer meeting. That's the meeting before prayer meeting. You ever do a real big important meeting at work? And do you ever have the meeting before the meeting? That's really important, you know? I like to have a prayer meeting before prayer meeting. (laughs) And that's intercessory prayer. And God and I have this appointment every Tuesday where I pray over many things. And, you know, the Lord and I have a great time praying. But no, there's one particular girl, one particular young lady that there is darkness Binding up her life right now. And every Tuesday, God and I talk about that girl. And every Tuesday, I bring her before the throne of God. Now, have I seen God work yet? Have I seen breakthrough yet? Have I seen her repent yet? Have I seen God change her life yet? No. But let me tell you. I don't believe in prayer that worked. I believe in prayer that's working. Amen. And every Tuesday, I just chip away. Every Tuesday, we just keep on cutting that massive tree of unbelief. And I don't care how big a tree is in your life. You take an axe out every morning and you whack at that thing. What's eventually going to happen? I don't care how big it is. Eventually, it shall fall. Amen. And you don't give up in prayer. You keep on praying. You keep on trusting. You keep on Grinding away at that. Axing away at that. Don't let Satan tell you God's not paying attention. The greatest description of Elijah is in verse number 17. Look at it with me. James 5, 17. There's great power. Verse 16 says, as we pray, God is working. The effectual fervent prayers of the righteous availeth much. Elijah was a man of what? Like passions or like nature. In other words, he was just like us. In other words, Elijah was not extraordinary. Do you understand that? Elijah was actually quite ordinary. We don't know anything about his past. We don't have any kind of biographical sketch about him. But what made Elijah extraordinary with God is these two words. He prayed. Amen. What a description of a life. He prayed. And that took a very ordinary man and made him extraordinary in the things of God. Many of you will know James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family. What a great man of God James Dobson is. But do you know that when James Dobson's father died... Do you know what he had wrote on his tombstone? It's actually what I would love to have on mine. He had two words. He prayed. Because he was a man of prayer. Amen. God's not looking for extraordinary people. 
God is looking for quite ordinary people to make them extraordinary. Do you understand? And it's prayer that will transform you from an ordinary Christian to an extraordinary Christ follower. There was a man who was born on September 16th, 1860, who in my view was quite extraordinary. His name was Samuel Chadwick. Has anyone ever heard of Samuel Chadwick? Let me introduce you to him. Samuel Chadwick who grew up to be one of the greatest pastors that England ever produced. But Samuel was born into a very poor family, into a very poor neighborhood. As a matter of fact, he grew up in a mill town and he, he said of his childhood, on the road he grew up, there was not a blade of grass, there was not one flower or one tree anywhere. He grew up very poor, began his first job working in the mills at age eight years old. But Samuel had a salvation experience when he was only 10. The Lord saved him as a young boy. He was called to preach at age 15. And Samuel would go to preaching stations in the Methodist denomination and he would preach and he would do his best, but there was a problem. There was no power to his preaching. There was no fire in his life. There was no Holy Spirit. And therefore, there were no conversions. Samuel Chadwick preached from the age of 15 for seven years to the age of 22 without one single conversion. Think of that. And one day, five years later, he got with a band when he was 20 years old. He got with a band of Methodists who believed in prayer. Who believed in the fire of the Holy Spirit. And God began to work in Samuel's life. God began to change young Samuel Chadwick. And you know what Samuel Chadwick did one day? (laughs) He took all of his precious sermon notes. (laughs) All of the notes that he was so proud of that he had collected through those years. All of the sermons that he had written. And he took them all and stacked them up. And you know what he did? He set fire to them. And as a result, God set fire to his soul. See, the problem with our culture today was the problem with his culture back then. And actually, it's been a human problem for all of history is that we are self-reliant. So often our spirituality results in being self-sustained Christians. We were never designed to be self-sustained. And Samuel Chadwick took all of his preaching notes, set them on fire. Well, that next Tuesday night prayer, I was shocked. They have a Tuesday night, (laughs) they had a Tuesday night prayer back then like we do today. And that Tuesday night prayer, that following week after setting fire to all of his sermons, two women in the church who had been quarreling, who were enemies, came to the altar together. And repented together. Samuel sensed. What I believe we sensed. Back on October 4th. The wind shifted. That next Sunday morning. That was Tuesday night. The next Sunday morning. He had led his first person to the Lord. That he had ever led in his pastoring. In his ministry. 
By the end of that Lord's Day, after he had preached, seven people had come to the Lord. (laughs) And God began to work. But one day, Samuel Chadwick, as fire was beginning to burn within his soul, he was reading John 11 and 12, and it was the story of Lazarus. And in the story of Lazarus, he noticed that it was after the raising of Lazarus from the dead that many people followed Jesus. And so, young Samuel Chadwick began to pray, Oh God, give me a Lazarus. Give me a conversion of a Lazarus that will show people the power of God and the glory of God. Well, it was that next Sunday that the town drunk, the meanest man in town by the name of Barry Bob walked into the doors of the church and God got a hold of him. Amen. (laughs) And that old drunk gave his life to the Lord and the change that took place in him in the days and the weeks and the months following spread not only to his town but all the surrounding towns and everyone knew that Barry Bob was now living for Jesus Christ. And it brought revival. And from that day forth, from the age of 22, all the way throughout his life, he lived from the 1860s into the 1930s. And everywhere he preached, every revival, every sermon, every Sunday, he had one primary prayer. God, give me a Lazarus. What a mighty man of God he was. It was Samuel Chadwick that helped me so much when we were building Preaching Christ Church. Samuel Chadwick said, and I hid this in my heart. Samuel Chadwick said, you preach to broken hearts, you'll never preach to empty pews. Isn't that a great saying? You preach to broken hearts, you'll never preach to empty pews. See, I have no idea what our attendance is today. I know we're coming off a fall break. I have no idea what the, you know, I can't see you, so I don't know how many's here. Which actually is a blessing in blindness being a pastor, you know. I don't get sad or glad on whatever the attendance is. It doesn't matter. I preach the same no matter what we got, right? But let me tell you, I spent several years preaching only to a handful. There was one Sunday I was telling the 9 a.m. service, and I won't go into all the detail, but I'll, I'll just say this. There was one Sunday, our first year that we were at church. We met in a banquet hall of the old Holiday Inn, turned old Kingsport Inn, and now it's, it's gone, but it used to be the old Kingsport Inn. And I don't know if you ever stayed there. I doubt you did, but they didn't brag of a cleaning service, I can tell you that. They had a wedding that night, Saturday night. I worked... At that time, I worked as a night guard. I worked graveyard shift as a night guard. I'd take all my commentaries to work with me and just study all night long. (laughs) And that Saturday, I took off work because I knew they would destroy the place. And I would get off work Sunday morning from working Saturday night take a shower, grab all of our sound gear, put it in a truck and go and set up all the sound system and set up all the chairs. I was an idiot. I'd set up a hundred chairs and there'd be 10 of us there, but I had faith. (laughs) This is going to be the Sunday. (laughs) And that Sunday, that wedding party, they 
destroyed the place, destroyed it. There was no hope. There was no cleaning it. Not before church Sunday. And do you know where Preaching Christ Church gathered that Sunday morning? Look, look at our, look what a beautiful auditorium God has given us. But do you know where we gathered that Sunday? In the kitchen of the King Sport Inn. And I preached that day in the kitchen of an abandoned, run-down hotel. But look how faithful God. Can we just thank God for his faithfulness today? Amen. But it was models, it was examples like Samuel Chadwick that taught me, hold on, don't give up. God's going to work. God's going to move. And let me tell you what I'm learning right now. You know, this has been such a hard year for everyone, but it's been a hard year for our church. It's been a tough year on families. It's been extremely difficult. And the other day, I was just praying for our church, and I was praying for Sundays. And you know what I asked the Lord for? How silly of me. I asked the Lord for momentum. Isn't that silly? I said, God, we need, we need some momentum, Lord. We need momentum. People are, are home and some are afraid to come out and some are, have gotten complacent and some, you know, get me wrong, there are some very legitimate things. I'm not throwing stones at that, but there's many that they should be in God's house today, but they're not. And there's complacency. And I was praying and I said, oh God, we need momentum. And the Holy Spirit said, stop. No, you're, you're whining. Quit. God ever do that with you? Good night. My Piper, my nine-year-old, she whined yesterday. Like there was, I, We were coming home from a long trip. And I just turned and I said, Piper, can you hear the whine in your voice? Quit whining. The Lord said the same thing to me. <laughs> The Lord said, you don't need momentum. You need fire. You're praying for the wrong thing. You're expecting the wrong thing. And what brings the fire of God? Prayer and prayer alone. That's it. Only prayer. And so I want to ask you today, will you commit yourself to being a greater person of prayer? Because prayer takes ordinary Christians and makes them extraordinary. Martin Luther, that great reformer of the 1500s, he was so busy. Do you know what he would say? He would say, I have so much to get done today, I'm too busy not to pray. <laughs> Don't let Satan tell you you're too busy to pray. No, you're too busy not to pray. Do you see the difference? You know, I used to... So, check this out. Martin Luther would spend two hours every morning in prayer before God, before he started his day. And I used to look at that, especially as a young pastor, and I used to think, how in the world can someone spend hours in prayer? I would tell the Lord, I would say, Lord, I just, I'll be honest with you, I don't have that much to say. Even today when I write books, it's not... A matter of cutting out a bunch of content. It's that I struggle to find enough stuff to say. To fill up a book. And sometimes I just, you know, I'll not have a whole lot to say. And for many years I felt very inadequate in prayer. Because I wasn't someone who I thought had the ability to pray for an hour at a time. Or two hours at a time. Or three. I mean crying out loud. An hour felt like forever. I'd, I'd just whew, squirrel. Right? I, uh, 
And I thought, how do people do it? Well, do you know what was wrong with me, church? And maybe this is a hang up with you. Do you know what was wrong with me? Is I thought people who prayed for hours talked for hours. I didn't realize that spending hours with the Lord wasn't me doing all the talking. It was actually me doing most of the listening. And now, I don't say this in a boasting way. I say it in a way that I give glory to God. Now, I am able to spend hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it is in the morning. I normally, almost every morning, spend hours just with God. And that's something I never thought that I would be able to do. Because I thought that meant I had to talk for two hours. And I just don't have that much to say. Some of you are rolling your eyes going, have you heard you preach? <laughs> Become a person of prayer because it takes ordinary Christians and it makes them extraordinary. The greatest life's description of Elijah is James 5.17. He prayed. Could that be said of you? Number two, quickly, number two, what marked his life was boldness. See, here's what I really love. Prayer leads to boldness. Do you know that? If you're someone that you're timid with the Lord, or you're timid in your faith, or you're timid to obey God, let me tell you, you need more prayer. Because prayer leads to boldness. If God's told you to do something, as a matter of fact, let me just be very specific. I believe in my heart that when I mentioned Hope Haven this morning, and when I said that there are some who perhaps God's calling you to go to a homeless shelter and to share your story, your heart began to beat fast. And while your spirit says... I know this is what God wants me to do. Your mind is saying, there's no way I can. You're timid. No, you need, to, you need to pray about that. God's calling many of you to serve in this way. I know in my heart he is. That's why God told us to bring Joel down here to the church. That's why the Lord told us, sign people up to take Thursdays. Because God's calling you to step out in faith. You say, Chad, I don't think it'd be comfortable. Well, of course it wouldn't be comfortable. That's not what God uses. You find me a verse where God says, once you get comfortable, God will use you. It's not there. The book of Amos says, woe unto those who are at ease in Zion. So what's God calling you to do? God may be calling you to work with children. God may be calling you to serve in outreach. God may be calling you to join a team. God may be calling you to start a ministry. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, you'll not do it without prayer. Become more of a person of prayer. Then that leads, number two, to boldness. There was a showdown that day. There was a showdown and there was a line drawn in the sand and Elijah broke the status quo. Could that be what's missing in your life today? Is it just the status quo spiritually? Are you in the exact same place with the Lord as you were this time last year? Or three years? Or five years? Or ten years? Break the status quo. Prayer leads to that. 
Lastly today, prayer leads to boldness. Boldness leads to action. Elijah was a man of action. If you drop down to verses 34, 35, and 36, Elijah, so it would seem, went crazy. Now let me set this up for us. Some of you know the story, but some of you may not know many of the details of the story. Let's familiarize ourselves with it. Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build two altars, one to the God of Baal, the other to the God of Israel. And whichever God sends fire from heaven, anybody ever seen that happen? Whichever one sends fire from heaven on the altar, that's who we're going to serve. Sadie didn't feel well this morning, but she walked into the living room when I was listening to 1 Kings 18. And she heard what Elijah said, and she said, wow, boy, he really had a mouth on him, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And let me show it to you. So, they got, so, so Elijah says, well, well, here's what we'll do. Well, uh, let, let the God of Baal go first. 450 prophets. We'll give you first dibs. That's what he's saying. And the Bible says that from morning until noon, for many hours, they prayed, they danced, they chanted. They did all they could to get the God of Baal to respond. But the Bible says no one listened and no one paid attention. (laughs) And Elijah actually mocks the 450 prophets. Now, think about this. Elijah is the only prophet of God there. One against 450. What are the odds? And you know what Elijah says? Elijah, some of you would would be in a great small group with Elijah. He goes, well, where is your God? Perhaps he's taking a trip. Perhaps he's sleeping. Are you ready for this one? Perhaps he went to relieve himself. That's when Sadie said, boy, he had a mouth on him, didn't he? (laughs) And they got so desperate, the Bible says, that the 450 prophets of Baal began to cut themselves. How many many especially students cut themselves today? Do you realize what a problem that is? People who fight depression, people who fight darkness, people who fight these things, both adults and, but particularly students, they cut them. Do you know why they cut themselves? Because it is an oppressive spirit. And it's been around for the ages. So the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves until the blood flowed. But the, pro- but the God of Baal never, never answered. Elijah finally says at noon, this is enough. He goes and he repairs the altar of the Lord. He tells Israel, gather around me. The Bible says that he took the wood and he stacked up all of the wood. The Bible says that he took a bull and he cut up the bull. And there the wood was prepared and there the sacrifice was made ready on the altar. And then he dug a deep trench all around the altar. And then he did the unthinkable. He took water. Now remember, they're in a famine. They're in a drought. Do you remember that? It had not rained in how long? Say it with me. How long? Three years. Now, water is always a precious commodity or a precious resource in the Middle East, but imagine it not rained in three years. You don't waste water. 
And do you know what Elijah did? Elijah, look at it, verse 34, verse 35. He tells them, not just once, not just twice, but three times, to pour buckets of water over the wood in the sacrifice. And the Bible says that so much water was poured over the wood and the animal that it filled up the drench, uh, 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 the, the trench around the altar. Now, friends, if you're trying to set something on fire, what's the last thing you're going to pour on it? Water. Let me tell you the principle here. Say amen if you're with me right now. Do you know what most of our problem is? Now, say amen if you're with me. Do you know why most of our prayers are not answered? Say amen if you're with me. Because I want you to get this. Do you know why most of our prayers are not answered? It's because we get in God's way. We think we have to help God out. Friends, let me tell you, God doesn't need any help. And on this day, when Elijah prayed his great prayer to the Lord, he made it as hard on God as he could humanly make it. What a difference that is from Abraham who tried to help God. And look at the mess he got into. Could it be that as you pray about your certain prayers that you get in God's way? Come on now. Many of you pray for your wayward children, but yet you bail them out every single time. Many of you pray for finances, but yet you turn right around and go into debt. Many of us do things, and listen, what did Paul say? Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. So let's don't throw stones here. But let's understand, God doesn't need our help. What God does not need is for you to bring your need before God and lay it on the altar and then after you're done praying, pick it right back up and put it back on your shoulders. God doesn't need you to do that. God doesn't need your strength. God doesn't need your abilities. God doesn't need your intellect. God doesn't need your angles. God doesn't need your intervention. He's God all by Himself. And God can answer your request without your nosing into it. If I can say it politely. And here Elijah pours water all over the wood. All over the sacrifice. To the point it fills up the trench. And now Elijah is going to pray his great prayer. Now, if you read the prayer of Elijah, I want you to notice something. People, people who are much with God. As a matter of fact, that's another Leonard Ravenhill quote. I'm all about Leonard Ravenhill this morning, aren't I? You really should read his, his works, listen to his sermons. Google him on uh, YouTube or <laughs> whatever. You know what I mean. Look him up. Listen to him preach on YouTube. He would often say, people want to be much for God, but until they're much with God, you won't be much for God. The church today needs to hear that. And so, Elijah begins to pray his great prayer. Now, let me tell you what I find interesting about his prayer. It's so concise. Do you remember what the prophets of Baal did? They prayed from morning until noon. I would imagine they probably started about 6 or 6.30 a.m. 
And from that time all the way till noon, they prayed much. But look how short, look how concise Elijah's prayer is. Listen, those who pray in secret, they don't have to pray a whole lot out loud. You know what? <laughs> they don't have to make a spectacle of themselves. It was just a, a concise, to-the-point prayer. And listen, when God sent fire, look what the Bible says happened. It consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It consumed the dust. And it licked up all of the water. And when that happened, the Bible says that Israel fell on their face. Could you imagine seeing something like that for yourself? And they said, the Lord is God. Now, let me end today. Let me end today telling you about someone very special to me, although I never met him. In 1903, a young man by the name of Evan Roberts lived in Wells. And he began to pray for a mighty move of God. He began to pray for a great transformation, not only in his own heart, but within the churches of Wales and in the community of Wales. If you've never done any reading on the great Welsh revival of 1904-1905, you need to look it up and do some reading on that great mighty move of God. It shook the world. But leading up to it, this is very special to me, and, and, and if you'll give me just a few moments, I want to share this with you. Evan Roberts had a prayer that he began to pray for many, many months leading up to the revival. And it was a simple prayer, but it was, Lord, bend me. You know where that comes from? David in the Psalms said, incline my heart. That word incline means to bend. In other words, bend my heart toward the things of God. Bend my heart toward holiness. Bend my heart toward godliness. Bend my heart toward obedience. What a marvelous prayer to pray. Bend me, Lord. Oh. And the day that the revival hit, they had went to church that morning. They had went to lunch to a church member's home. And Evan had a hard time eating. He'd been fasting for a while. And that day he had a hard time eating. He was burdened. He wanted to see God move so bad. And his friend took notice that, his prayer partner took notice that Evan didn't hardly touch his food. And. They went to church that evening and the choir is singing and Evan is sitting off to the side and his friend notices his countenance and how burdened he was. And Evan slipped down to his knees during the singing and the Welsh, oh how they could sing. But Evan prayed. And you know what Evan's prayer was that night? Evan said, how apt is this to what we're talking about today? Evan said, God, the wood is ready. The sacrifice is ready. And what did he mean? He meant Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you brothers to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Which is your true spiritual worship. See, you know what the problem is with being a, a living sacrifice? See, that day Elijah killed the bull, cut him up and put the sacrifice. But you know what? The Bible calls us a living sacrifice. And you know what the problem is with being a living sacrifice? We feel the pain. We often want to get off the altar, don't we? 
We want to get into a place of ease, a place into being comfortable. We don't like the things that make us uncomfortable. But friends, this is what the Christian walk is. It is a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And the Bible says that's what makes you holy and acceptable unto God. The Bible says that is your true spiritual worship. Not your favorite song on Christian radio. Not your favorite worship song. It's you being a living sacrifice. That is your true spiritual worship. And Evan had sacrificed himself. And Evan had made himself a sacrifice unto the Lord. And that night on his knees, he cried out to God. And he said, God, the wood is prepared. And the sacrifice is prepared. God, the only thing lacking is fire. And he said, only you, O God, can send the fire. Only God can answer a prayer like that. And that night, there was a little girl. It was a youth meeting. And that night, a little girl, she was only 12 years old. And she stood up and and she testified. And it wasn't deep. And it wasn't theological. It wasn't profound. It wasn't earth-shaking. All this little girl said, 12 years old, she said, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And all of a sudden, though it would seem out of nowhere, God sent fire from heaven. And the place was never the same. And a fire spread throughout wells. Do the research on it. Read the history of it. Friends, they had to shut down bars. They had to shut down saloons. They had to shut down police stations. They didn't have anyone to arrest anymore. Even in the coal mines, the mules, they, (laughs) this is true. Look up the history. They were so used, the the, the mules, the commands were cursings. And the coal miners were getting saved. And they were singing hymns. And the mules, they wouldn't move because they didn't know the commands. All they knew were curses. And it transformed the whole society. It transformed everything because one person pleaded for fire. Because one person said, make me the sacrifice. Because one person prepared the wood and prepared the sacrifice. But only God can give fire. 